Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Subnet Show. I'm your host, Gabriel Cardona, and don't worry, everything is fine. Everything is fine on my end. I'm coming to you from San Francisco this week. I hope that you're doing absolutely amazing. I am joined, as always, by my amazing co-host, the man with the most cats in crypto, Mr. Connor Daly. What is up, my friend? Not much, Gabriel. Excited to be here. Happy to be here. Another week, another good Subnet Show episode. Nice shirt. Looking fresh. Ah, yes. One of the many bootleg. I think this one might have come from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, that's looking good. Sometimes the bootleg ones look bootleg, but that one looks that one looks legit. The the logo is a little off. It's definitely not the official logo. I don't <laughs> know who just like kind of like photoshopped their own like random Avox logo. Like we have brand assets if you Google them. If you're ever interested in using the official token logo or any of the Ava Labs things, we have a press media kit. So if you ever if you ever need the real high quality assets, you can grab them. Whenever I was in, I'm going to see if I can open it up here. Whenever I was in uh, at the, uh, is it going to be too hard to find? Here it is. I don't know if you can tell, but I got the uh, sheet that went over the table at the um, oh. hackathon, the Graph Day Hackathon in San Francisco. And uh, somebody with absolute eagle eyes walked up and was like, hey, is the logo backwards? I guess it's, you know, if you look at yours, the um, <laughs> the little triangles on the bottom right or whatever it is, and this one's backwards. I didn't notice it myself, but some absolute eagle-eyed block star came over and was like, hey, man, that's pretty sweet, but isn't the logo backwards? And I'm like, I'm not sure, but I ended up with the, uh, with the actual- It just makes it more valuable. It's the misprint. It's a one-off. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, moving forward, we are joined today by, um, well, I guess I should step back. So one of the very exciting things that's happening recently in crypto is this explosion of GameFi, where basically gaming, you know, um, decentralized gaming and blockchain. And I have been, you know, on record more than once saying that this gaming could very well be the killer app for crypto. So, you know, every time there's kind of like a new platform which emerges, the question is always, what is the killer app? What is the app that's going to make things go viral and hit the network effect needed to tip and go mainstream? And we're always looking forward. And of course, crypto is a multifaceted jewel. So some people might say, well, you know, peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash is the obvious uh, killer app. It's what tipped with Bitcoin. Or some people may say DeFi. That's what tipped with, you know, Ethereum and Blockchain 2.0. But one thing is the gaming is just so huge. I know during COVID for the first time ever, esports or, you know, electronic gaming um, was bigger than, you know, official gaming. Obviously, most of the world was shut down during that time, but that's just a trend that's going to continue. And I myself grew up gaming like crazy. That was actually my, introduce, my introduction to really computers and computation wasn't really a personal computer. It was, you know, a Nintendo. That was the computer I was running when I was a kid. And now my son, I have a 13-year-old son, and he is an absolute gamer. Him and his friends love it, love it, love it. So, you know, this idea of amplifying uh, gaming with blockchain um, components or moving certain parts of the uh of gaming into the blockchain is obviously something that I think is very, very cool. And I think that's going to be one of the killer apps. And so today we're very fortunate to be joined by the project lead at Hatchie Pocket, uh, Saul Omeaglu. Hopefully I pronounced that somewhat close. Um, he's uh, joining yes, us. How are, you, how are you doing, Saul? Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Honestly, it's, a, it's an honor to be here on the yes. show. Thanks for joining us. He, he's waking up early. He's in the future. We're still in the in the past in the United States. He's in the future on the other side of the world. So we're very grateful to, um, to be able to line up the times here. So um, I think people who are familiar with the show kind of know the general lay of the land. We usually go with crypto vision and crypto journey and then talk about the different projects. So I guess maybe before we kind of drill down on Hatchy Pocket, which I suspect there is a lot we can talk about there. 
let's kind of just get a super high level of your um, crypto journey. How and when did you first find out about crypto? Yeah, right on. Um, yeah, honestly, that question takes me back. And I think like many people, I had a couple kind of like superficial interactions where someone comes to you and they're like, hey, there's this new thing. And then you immediately have an opinion and generally pretty dismissive because it's kind of, it's very big. It's like immediately like, hey, there's this tiny thing that you've never heard of and it's going to change the world. So you're like, yeah, well, probably not. And many years later, I kind of had another similar interaction. Um, when I was in high school, they were going through a kind of, there was like a phase of like prepping and stuff. And the people were kind of going dark into the really um, like end days religious stuff. It's a very weird place to start from. But um, I'd actually always seen there was that documentary, the Zeitgeist, like a money documentary. And um, they talk about just the banking system and how uh, fractional reserve banking and, and that kind of stuff works. And I was always super fascinated with like the philosophical stuff, just like the reasons for doing things, the, the reason for behaving a certain way. How does government work? How come this guy's the leader? that kind of stuff. So uh, initially, when I saw it, I thought to myself, like, Bitcoin probably doesn't have much of a chance. And I'm sure they'll find one way to stop it. It's just, it's just no understanding of what it is, just the kind of blanket feeling of, if that's what they're really trying to do, good luck to them, because money system versus any other system, we're probably going to end up with, with money. And then I think in, it was around 2017, when it was starting to kind of, come back into the mainstream it had already proven itself over a couple different cycles and i just couldn't believe it was still alive and i had a lot of time on my hands i was working as an indie dev and did a deep dive and i think like two weeks later i came out of my rabbit hole just like evangelical bitcoiner and um since then i've been pretty active in blockchain so i'm actually going on to my fourth or fifth year now as time goes so fast um I was around for the, it was kind of like a, it was the crypto anarchists that were promoting Bitcoin and cryptocurrency blockchain. There was a lot of really heavy uh, focus on communities and governance. And I kind of see this one as a slightly different phase where it's, I don't know, we call them DGENs, but it's similar push, like philosophical, where they're thinking of communities and governance and stuff. But now NFTs have taken it. So I've had an interest in chain for a while. And um, especially when it comes to behavior and cooperation and communities and stuff. And um, because we also specialize in games, it seemed like a good fit for us to kind of generate the HashiPocket idea and to move in that direction. So yeah, it's been a long journey and a weird one. I wouldn't have mapped it out initially but we kind of ended up like that so it's been a while and interesting to see what's happening with crypto i still feel like we're early in our infancy you know like you said we're still waiting for the i think the killer apps kind of framework is there but we're still waiting for the actual iteration like the product iteration which one's going to take over so for those who don't know can you give us an intro to hashi pocket yeah, um, Hatchy Pocket actually 
is a real attempt at the killer app for crypto. Um, gaming is one thing, but uh, crypto also has some, uh, I guess, like strong potential in terms of uh, governance, cooperation, people working together, uh, especially without having to outline every small instruction or every small kind of uh, objective. Uh, I see it as like a real potential to set a base framework and then to work off that. There's actually two layers or, or two big layers, I should say, to the hatchy pocket. I call it an iceberg, but we have our greater ambition and the current iteration. So what we're looking at right now is actually the hatchy pocket initial website, which the very first iteration of hatchy pocket is actually just a digital collection. So very old school, just like a, those capsule vending machines where you go in, you put a dollar and you get one out of a collection. So we've got 40 monsters and uh, you pretty much have a one in 40 chance to get any specific monster and a one in 40 chance to get a shiny version. So the gold card you can see behind some of these guys, those are the shiny versions. And um, there's a special unique guy who only exists as a shiny. So there's very few of him. So uh, collections are actually, uh, it's kind of an entertainment product, but they also used to work as a kind of de facto currency. In, especially in times of inflation, you'd always see uh, a kind of like collectibles also kind of make a resurgence. So the first ever collectibles were actually um, cigarette cards. You buy a pack of cigarettes and you get like a baseball card or a flower or a old school like supermodel in like a bikini or something. And um, these kind of became like collectibles. And as you came into different phases, they kind of became currencies and stuff. So uh, what we were aiming for with the initial Hatchet Pocket product was basically to have a monster IP as something that people would chase and get familiar with. And the first version that we released is what we're looking at now, the Hatchy Pocket collectible cards. So there was a couple of reasons we did it this way. One of them was to get people familiar with the monsters themselves and uh, try to create like an association layer. So they, they don't call them just, you know, card number 415, but they call it by their name. And another one was actually kind of defensive just to make sure we're not a security we have a kind of very unrelated product. We're not making any promises. We're just like, hey, this is a collection of cards and you can get into it if you like to. Um, as a fundamental collectible, there's a lot of extras in this that come only with blockchain, which is stuff like being able to verify how many of this card exists. It's like a thing where right now you could see Pokemon cards, for example. No one knows how many Charizards exist. You could actually go... Right now, maybe there's a box somewhere of just like thousands of Charizards. It's a possibility. Whereas on chain, we don't really have that kind of thing. And then anyway, the deeper layer, once you're able to kind of verify how many sets they have and stuff. So we only have a thousand sets and we've kind of messed with our logic in a way that promotes certain types of behavior. So one of the big things in our world is having a, all of the grass monsters, all of the water monsters, or every monster. So we call these elemental sets or the full collection. 
And based on these, we'll have different things happening, which kind of brings us to our next point. Uh, based on your collection progress, uh, we're releasing staking very soon. And based on your collection progress, you'll receive different amounts, different weights for staking. And the currency that you're actually receiving, it, we don't sell it. We only give it out to people that own the collection. The currency you'll be receiving will actually be the DAO token that owns this brand. So the brand itself will be tokenized. The ownership of the brand will be tokenized. And essentially the community that grows the brand will be the owners of the brand. So if you think back to like playground rules where you know you have this card that I need, you have a duplicate and I have a duplicate of a card you need. It's an asymmetric, but similar value trade. It's one that we're both happy to make, especially when the incentives are aligned, where you know that you're accessing a greater bonus and I know I'm accessing a greater bonus. You kind of move a little bit away from the exact aesthetic of that monster more to your objective, which is getting the higher bonus. And um, like this, we also kind of qualify our users to be the ones that are most interested in what we're doing and we posit our tokens to them and they get ownership of the brand. We have a little few small rules, like anyone can use the brand after a certain amount, they pay a tax to the brand. They don't need to own the specific NFT. They're just similar to, you won't own Marvel, but you might be able to contract in with them to use part of their IP in on a specific platform and stuff. And ultimately we'd like to be, uh, decentralized open source IP that anyone can use. Basically a monster, elemental monster IP, similar to Digimon or Pokemon that anyone can use in, in the development of their games. We've got a new website. I should have probably linked you guys to do a bit of a preview. If you put it here in the chat, website, I can bring we'll it up. Some... If you want to dump it in the chat here, I'll bring it up while you talk. Yeah, let me, let me get that now. Um, there's a few things we're doing now just because uh, we weren't sure how things will get received. How do I do a chat here? Um, we weren't sure how it'll get received and we don't have, uh, our strength is not marketing. Where our strength is kind of like product development. And um, we've noticed over the last year that we're not really satisfying people with the effectiveness of our marketing. So. Normally we do like feature-based marketing and that's part of the reason why we've delayed a little bit, but this is essentially the new website. We'll have a new collection coming out, some extra details on how the DAO works and all of the features for being able to stake, get your currencies, kind of arbitrate over the brand. We've got places where you can download the assets or add assets in. We're hoping to make essentially it's a kind of like compartmentalized business model into the token itself. So we try to do everything in a decentralized way. Adding assets to the asset library happens. Essentially, it's like an artist or like a decentralized artist for the company can put up an asset and the community can pay for it, almost like the purchasing or the accounts department of a company. And then on the other end, you've got any devs from anywhere in the world so normally they would be using the Unity Asset Store or the Unreal Engine Asset Store. It's very hard to find consistent assets. 
like assets that all work in a, in a single world. You could imagine you can get two friends that are good drawers. And once they try to draw something, well, they can draw you two good drawings each, but they don't fit into the same world. One's got like different details, different line work. So art direction becomes more of an issue going into the future where stock photos are available. And um, with ours, we kind of set the base framework and we try to do things like the branding assets and stuff so we don't end up in similar situations to uh, some of the people that are like just live tracing your logos. And um, yeah, we basically try to make every interaction that would belong in a game company or an IP onto the chain. And this is really what we're aiming for with Tachi Pocket. We want to one day be the decentralized version of Pokemon or Digimon. We sometimes say to people like, imagine anyone could use the Pokemon or Digimon brand at any time. So the guy that wants to make a t-shirt, it's not a bootleg t-shirt. This is part of the community. It's part of the company. It brings value back to the community because they're creating basically a billboard that people will wear and, and take around with them. Or if they make a game, any one of those games could be the differentiating game that kind of puts us out into the public eye. And honestly, I totally agree with your idea about gaming before. I didn't know about the esports taking over, but one thing that I do remember seeing pretty recently, and I sometimes keep up with this um, more before, but there was last time I checked, it was 5 billion smartphone users. And uh, gaming, had become the number one entertainment uh, source in the world, basically. It had beaten movies and, I mean, I don't even know if the rest are up there, but TV and movies is pretty much the last, uh, the last milestone was beating movies and, and that's where we are now. So yeah. So, uh, I want to jump soon. in here. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think you've, you've said some really interesting stuff, but yeah, the last part, I mean, definitely, you know, caught my attention because I am a person who has at least one very good pitch for Pokemon, <laughs> but it's uh, I, I just, they haven't been returning my calls. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Like they must've given me the wrong number. I, I, I don't know what's <laughs> happening there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love this idea of kind of being like Disney Dow or, or Pokemon Dow essentially where, you're creating this framework for shared ownership of IP and being able to basically institutionalize uh, fan fiction almost, but make, uh, <laughs> you know, allow people who are interested in these things who normally they would be entirely unattainable. I mean, like who can legitimately work with the Pokemon license? There's probably, you know, yeah, it's super AAA hard. game studio. I mean, maybe a couple AAA game studios, uh, some movie studios uh, in Hollywood who are you know incredibly well funded. Like you know, if Disney wanted to work with Pokemon, they probably could. But you know, beyond beyond that, you know, for uh, the the smaller the, the shrimps among us, <laughs> which is I mean, really everybody. I mean, these are. Uh, unattainable dreams. So it's really cool that you're creating a template because even if it's, you know, not, not hatchy pocket, I mean, you're definitely just pushing the boundary of, of what is possible for shared community ownership. And I got to say, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Thanks, man. And yeah, exactly spot on. Like I used to work in a pretty big 
it was an outsourcing company, but we used to, it, it was a pretty big one. They had, uh, when I was, when I was leaving because of coronavirus, unfortunately, but, um, it was before remote work anyway, it was a random thread, but it, we, we roughly had, uh, I think at that time it was 300 people working in the studio. Uh, we were working for really big companies, like billions of dollar companies, really big IPs. It's like stuff everyone's heard of. I think most of them are public now, but um, we did a lot of games in the top 100. And sometimes we would be privy to the little details because you go to lunch with the guy, dinner with the guys, and the executive dudes would always tell you about what the negotiation was like getting the IPs. So some of these IPs, even simple ones, like, like an IP like WWE, which once you leave America, no one even knows about this thing. Like you, you mean like grown men, they hit each other for fake, for fun, for real. <laughs> like no one knows. Like this is real. People do this. So wait, they get paid millions of dollars. <laughs> Sign me up, man. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, it still is a massive IP. And if it's big in America, it's big enough because America is part of the highest spending per user. They've got a huge population, you know, it's 300 million plus. So uh, the company that owned that IP, you ask them about the process and having the IP and stuff. Basically, it's totally arbitrary. They look at you, they just size you up. They're like, oh yeah, this guy looks like he can pay. Or this guy doesn't look like we're going to make enough. So we're not even going to answer his phone calls or give him the other number. Once they do send it to you, they give you something like, Hey, here's a contract that almost looks like we wrote this up yesterday while we were drunk and we don't care about you. It's something that's basically like, pay us a million dollars now and then you can start to create your own assets that match exactly the rules that I'm going to make up as you go. This guy's forehead's too big. This guy's arms aren't big enough. The crotch isn't loud as we want. <laughs> you get the most random things sometimes. But on top of that, you got this, you paid the million dollars, then you're giving a kind of retainer. It's like $20,000 a month or 20% of your earnings, whichever one is higher. So before you've even made anything, like you just signed the paper, now you're already out of pocket a meal. And then now you have to prepare your art team. This is what we're doing. The, the director is briefing the guys. Then they're taking weeks and months to create each asset, animate each asset, make every UI, like they're doing it from scratch. The only thing they got was the allowance to use those characters. And they're out of pocket every month. So if you're not well-funded, like proper well-funded, like you never even really needed to make the game because each of these guys, like everyone in the games industry, they're pretty expensive. That's why our old company was attractive because we would have really technically skilled people but they're living in countries like Vietnam where $1,000 a month, especially back then, go back four or five years is a big difference to how it is now. But $1,000 a month and the guy is like super happy, totally loyal to the company. Like he sees the company as like part of his family because they're taking care of him and all of his, like half his relatives, you know, like his grandma lives with them and he's taking care of all of them. And they're just like a junior, which in Australia, you couldn't hire, you, you couldn't get like an apprentice or an intern for a thousand dollars a month. People would look at you like, what's wrong with you? Give the guy some money, he's gonna starve. You know, it's like, 
and it's not a little bit of money. So certain parts of the world, you can go to like South America or something and you can really get these things. But on the other end of the scale, you've got people that are going to get paid a minimum of like 100K a year. So then you need a game team of like minimum 20, 30 people all in America. You're maybe paying like three, $4 million a year just to produce the assets, let alone the right to produce those assets might be an extra, you know, 200, 300 grand a year until you make your thing. And they don't want to lose the opportunity. So they'll give you a strange contract. You know, we allow you to use the IP, but only for film. It has to be on DVD. You can't go to cinemas. It's like, it's like random things like this. Oh, you can do it, but you can't do VHS tapes. We sold that to another dude. They'll tell you like, you can make it on Game Boy, but you can't make it on Xbox. Like something, you always have something. So we even had situations where it's like, I think I can give you the example now, but it was, it was like the Monopoly IP. And they were saying like, oh, hey, we're going to use this. We got the rights for, for mobile. And we're like, oh, sweet. You know, you just Monopoly on mobile and you're done. Like everyone's going to love that. And they said, yes, but we unfortunately can't use dice and we can't use the board. Like we have the Monopoly guy. <laughs> Such a strange who who got this deal? Such a strange they sell the dice to Monopoly guy. <laughs> I, was, I can't remember exactly. I think it was it was like two big brands fighting for it. Like Sony on one side and like another big game company, like worth billions on the other side. And some of these guys, they're worth billions. Like one of the guys we used to work with, company, the company itself was worth, I think, like two billion. And they're about to make another game and they do a raise and they get like another 300 mil. It's like, dude, you're already rich. <laughs> what are you doing? But it's just to cover the costs and the potential kind of waste of money. You never know some of the graveyard pieces that these companies make. They could actually be building a game for three or four years in the background. And a lot of this is done just with IP and asset production. So we're hoping to kind of weasel our way into that niche of games becoming big but uh, despite the fact that we've got so many indie devs in the world because of you know development is becoming easier because there's all of these kind of packages or you know boilerplate code templates and lots of things that help you code a game or develop the systems but then you get to the slow production side which is usually the asset production and you know being able to access an ip just to do all of the concepting and design stuff is already a shortcut you also do a bit of a shortcut when you go out into the marketing stage and you already have a positive association because millions of people have already seen that brand and interacted with that brand so there's a lot of advantages and that's why despite being so difficult to deal with and so difficult to do successfully people still try and even though it's so expensive like all of the incentives are wrong but it still manages to become a valuable endeavor and we're trying to kind of fit something into the same place so uh our stuff now they get the ip with zero friction it's like less than zero friction it's like we'll even help you so like we oil up the ground before they just yeah. slide in and um yeah we've got game ready assets full developed ip 
and the growing community. We're only small, but we're growing. <laughs> so, so we've talked a lot, you know, you, this is your kind of like Dow vision and, and how this ties in various, but you're, you're talking so much about game development. So I guess, how are you using all of your game development chops and like, what are your game development aspirations with Hatsu Pocket away from just the, the rights issue? Like, I guess, what games are you building? Yeah, man. Um, games are my passion. And I was an indie dev for a long time. I spent nearly eight years or, or nine years. It was going on to 10 before I started working in a, in a company. I thought I'll refine my craft and, and make epic games. I always, my dream always is to have my own top games because it's always been my ambition. Um, part of that process is kind of developing the resource pool needed to make those games. Uh, at the moment, we're working on a couple. We're a little bit reserved in showing them off, but there's, kind of, there's reasons for that. We don't like to disappoint people. And at the same time, surprise and delight, they're parts of the things that make things fun and exciting. So we'd like to surprise people when we get there. Though we also see like all of the support at the moment that we get kind of helps to establish those and to build them out. So we do try to show just enough every now and then. We've got a couple projects that we're working on now, which I hesitate to say because it's not the best thing to do, but it makes sense for us. We have experience in production as well. So we can do a little bit of the juggling in a way that makes sense. You know, it's not super nonsensical. It's not like a light diluted focus. So at the moment, um, we have two threads in our production studio. We actually have a pretty decent sized production studio. We're about 30 people. We have two big wow. threads in the production studio. On one side, we just focus on the development of the asset. So everything from more monsters for Gen 2 to making the Gen 1 monsters game-ready assets. So making a design into a game-ready asset is basically like concept drawing, sculpting, remodeling. So they're smaller and they'll render in the engine smoothly. Uh, texturing, rigging, animation. So all of these things might take behind the scenes from, it's like, it's like a very solid week per monster, basically. So the 40 monsters that we've currently got, and that's for a skilled team. It's like a skilled team of, let's say, at least four people because they all take on, one does modeling, one does UVs and texturing. Anyway, it's like a very solid week for, for a production studio. Uh, you're looking at roughly like a week to develop that. So one team is just making these 2D and 3D models and they're ready to go into any game engine. And then us on another side, we're taking those as a proof of concept. We've got a very ambitious game, which is actually an MMO, which we see as the kind of, it's like the epitome. It's like the, it's like the highest point you can get to for a game. And especially in terms of economy, in terms of kind of like the broadness of potential experiences and stuff. So it's also the craziest thing you can do because it's a, it's we're building a proper world. So it's so ambitious actually that among game devs, it's a joke. You don't usually say you're building an MMO unless you want to like, unless you're joking or you want to get laughed out of the room. It's just one of those game dev things that everyone wants to do. But it's like, it's like saying to your mate, hey, I know where the Holy Grail is. 
me and a few friends are going to go. We're going to go find it. It's like, you just don't do that. <laughs> Maybe you do it in secret. You say you're going on holiday. But that's kind of what we're doing. Um, we're working on the NMO, but we're kind of doing it quietly. And as we get there, we're trying to use these assets in other meaningful ways. So we're actually building a mini game right now, two mini games. One of them is just you and your mobile phone versus your high score. And the other one is you and a friend challenging another guy and trying to shoot them off a small platform. They're fun little games. They're like more like little toys that you can play with. And it's our way of trying to build and promote the brand and also kind of show that you can like really significantly reduce your production time by using these assets and focus on what makes a game fun as opposed to what makes it look good. And slowly, each game is working its own thread of building the positive associations with the brand and the familiarity with the brand and also kind of showing on another side that, hey, these things can be used and make a meaningful experience that is taken in well. There's a few advantages that we get as game devs. Like you can, it's a really massive thing to release something and on the first day get 2,000 downloads. They actually play the game. And on having the chain side, having the chain community, when you release a game and having access to that community totally helps you in that organic promotion that is normally difficult for anyone that isn't a well-marketed or decent-sized brand. So yeah, we're juggling a little bit at the moment and we don't want our own games to be the biggest focus because there's that little separation. So there's the decentralized IP itself and then there's us as a private entity using that IP and those resources with the intention to actually pay a tax. It's a very small tax. It's one of those things where like we've tested this over and over again and we're open to changing it. The DAO can change it at any time. But basically the rules of our like the rules of engagement with our brand is it's a zero percent tax, full access to the assets, the community, even some code that kind of connects you to the chain and stuff. Uh, we do everything from design assistance to economy assistance, like game design or economy design. And our team is there to help. Or publicly, you can get a bit of help as well. And it's zero cost upfront. Only after 300,000 USD profits, we take a 10% tax on profits. That doesn't go to me. It goes directly to the DAO. It's, like it, it's directly a DAO thing. So the ownership is really obvious that we don't actually own the brand. We're just users of that brand. So if we have any success, it's a success that anybody can replicate by themselves at any time. Like they just go there, they download our assets and they've got complete access to that. Going on to what you were saying before about shrimp, shrimp actually have a massive potential in the market. There's a few reasons. They need so little to sustain that on the other side, like the whales, they need so much to sustain. So those big companies, there's a bit of testament to the story I was saying before. Like even though they, they have billions in the bank, before they make some of their games, they do a race and they get you know hundreds of millions of dollars because of a few reasons. One, they are probably going to spend it doing different things, maybe on marketing on top of everything the most they'll do marketing. But then they actually, they're too big to fail. They can't take risks 
that could even suggest for a small moment in the future that there's a potential of failure. So they usually do things that are tried and tested. They don't go into like, oh, I wonder if the edge of the world is here. They don't do that kind of stuff. They do like, oh, Bob went there. He came back. He's been doing this a few times. He looks like he makes a X percent profit each time. Now let's send a whole bunch of ships and do Bob's run. So you see situations like Warcraft 3 was a very big one when I was young. Warcraft 3, a game by Blizzard in Blizzard's heyday, they released basically a world editor. And in that world editor, uh, the logic was there where you could place a guy and make some rules, you know, wait for a guy to get a 50% health and then change him into this guy. So like you could do that kind of stuff. But then what really powered that up was they had this massive pool of resources. So you had all of these high fantasy models, elves and orcs and dudes with axes, guys riding griffins. And it was a, essentially like a, a very strongly themed world, but then a blank canvas, do whatever you want. Out of these blank canvases, just the ability to kind of put a few of these logic bricks together and assets, like a massive pool of assets that you could utilize. People created completely new genres. The tower defense was turned into like a global kind of gaming force. Then the genre of tower defense really came out. Uh, Dota, the MOBA, that online, it's like one of the biggest esport games now. This all started in a Warcraft 3 custom map. And in the same way, Fortnite, which is one of the biggest games now, actually cloned a mod of DayZ, which was PUBG. And then once everyone saw that this PUBG game was doing well, but if only they fixed the graphics a little bit, if only it wasn't so buggy. And then you have a massive company like Epic. They come and they're like, okay, our next biggest uh, investment is cloning this game made by a shrimp, you know? And the shrimp like that, because they can take the risk, because they take so little to sustain themselves and they look for those crazy opportunities and they take advantage of the most ridiculous things where like you think like, no one's ever done this, it can't work. And then the shrimp's like, challenge accepted. <laughs> so it, it kind of gives you a little bit more of a possibility. So we're hoping that by tackling this kind of resource layer and making it so available, we give ourselves the chance to not only create, but then to take advantage of the success of something like a MOBA creation or a PUBG kind of uh, battle, I forget what they're called, but like that deathmatch battle royale thing. If we create a genre, it'll feed the brand. The brand will grow the community. There's like a circular dependency and that'll attract more people. And there's a growing pool right now of game developers in the world that just need assets. But even a $20 asset is too much for some people. Like some people, $20, like they don't make that in a week. You know what I mean? It's the reason why we chose Avalanche. Because we're looking at some stuff and they're like, oh, there's only like a $5 transaction fee. And I'll be like, that's like billions of people that can't afford that. <laughs> but yeah. Like so I, I, I'm really impressed by, you know, how, how big you guys are. I had no idea that you were that many people. And it seems that like you really have an expansive vision and <laughs> you're maybe a little bit the stereotype of NFT project 
has a roadmap. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah, there really, there really is a lot there. But I, I kind of have one more topic that I, I wanted to touch on, which you know I keep hearing these whispers about WinterNet and maybe a subnet, and I'm just kind of curious what what that's all about, and just if you could give us a little tease. Yeah, right on. I mean, I guess it first starts off with one of our expressions. So we've got something like the MMO expression of using the IP. And I know a lot of people that are specifically gamers first, like gamers before crypto, they don't get the whole metaverse thing. And I think this is why there's people that don't like the idea of a metaverse because it's very superficial and it's very hyped. And when something's super hyped and super superficial um it kind of polarizes you know um for me as a gamer first when i look at most metaverses i think to myself this is worse than an mmo that i used to play like on browser 12 years ago you know or, or longer than that because I'm, I'm pretty old now but like when i was 12 years old i used to play games like runescape or like guild wars or ragnarok online or you know, I think World of Warcraft was only a few years after that. And these games were proper, almost what we want to believe is a metaverse now. But it was a very immersive experience. It was a whole new universe to explore. There was a lot of things that you couldn't do. You could do something, like you could trade your mate. You, you know, your friend could go online and you could say, hey, I'll punch this guy first while he's attacking me. You can level up. And you got all of these random opportunities for different experiences. but ultimately. There were massive economies and they were really immersive experiences. It felt very connected. They were compartmentalized into servers. They were compartmentalized into games. But if you were smart, you could supersede that. For example, hey, I'll trade you my Pokemon card for your sword. Does that make a metaverse? Because I've attached, you know, I've traded my asset from a completely different world into this new thing. I guess like, the meta there or the main, I guess, like physics is just the real world and your ability to communicate and stuff, which is not so far from our current expressions of metaverse, which is like, hey, this guy has an NFT, he's making a game. And if you don't like his game, you can sell your NFT to someone else. Metaverse. But it's kind of superficial. Um, then people could say things like, hey, you have this asset the database is on the chain. So you're carrying around your asset into all of these different things. So you're going to a different game and your NFT is in your inventory, but it's not really useful. It's just like it's in your inventory. For it to be useful, there's all of this extra connection. You know, some people, they, they play a game and they go, oh, why didn't they just make this checkbox? You know, why didn't they add orcs? They just needed to make a checkbox and you have, you have an orc. But I mean, you need so much more then just like a boolean, you know, true or false, does orc exist? It's like, yes, orc exists. Now you've defined that orc exists. You've got an empty box. You have to fill it with orcs look like this. They animate like this. This is their texture. This is how a hat fits on, like all the little details. So in the same way, they have it in the inventory, but without defining all of those little details, you don't have it as an experience. It's just like a superficially it's superficially there. It's there in spirit, you know, it's like the party you didn't go to. What we would like to see 
as a gamer first, what I'd like to say is like, I've taken my sword from game one and game two recognizes my sword. But I mean, for you to be able to do that, you need a top layer that essentially holds all of the information of the example before of what the orc looks like, what the hat looks like on that orc and stuff. So we need a top layer that says, my sword exists in game A. It has this kind of look to it. It has this kind of skills and stuff. And there's a lot of problems. Like game B, one, your style might not fit. Two, your sword might be too powerful to just read in directly. It's like it breaks their game and stuff. So there's so much layer of difficulty that needs to be addressed before you can have the current kind of community perspective or ambition of what a metaverse should be. Uh, we believe that the only true way to do it is to essentially create this top layer. So Winternet was a kind of infrastructure play that we were doing uh, as not only Hatchie Pocket, actually, as Hatchie Pocket, um, we were working with some of the early guys on Avalanche and we connected directly with the Crypto Seals guys. And, hey, Baba. My daughter wants to say hello. Um, Your daughter, my so dad. <laughs> yeah, I heard him behind in the back. So we've actually connected with the Crypto Seals guys and we've been working with them. Um, we initially wanted to connect both their world and ours and we're ultimately trying to make a kind of universe where all of the games have some layer of connection and that's where Winternet came in. We're still a little bit it's, it's relatively quietly done because we're not 100% certain if we'll do it or not. There's a significant cost that comes with developing a subnet and stuff. And um, we've got a relatively decent-sized community. Most of them are technical. And we have a lot of people that are willing to take on validator nodes and stuff. But we're seeing how we go ahead with that. So it's kind of like a maybe, maybe not. We might even end up on swimmer network but ultimately what the idea was uh, is to have basically a, a top layer that both stores all of this info and is something that you can tap into it's backed up with us by also having an open ip and open asset repository because once that asset wants to leave one experience and become kind of meaningful in another one you need to fill that void and our easiest way to fill that void is to use all those assets. A lot of people don't realize this, but actually you would most likely get sued if you use even an NFT from a different project if that project doesn't want to be part of your experience. They could cease and desist you or they could sue you. It could be, it's one of those, it goes back into the arbitrary layer, is the social layer, like social governance, where a guy could say, this is my IP, I don't like the way you're using it. Like, for example, it, it could be anything, but let's say you use, like, you go to Yuga Labs and you make your own 3D assets of their monkeys. But then, even if it's a great experience, if you're going against their own in iteration, you're going against, I think it's called Otherworld or something. If you're going against the Otherworld kind of market, they could pull the plug on you at any time. There was a famous example with the Harry Potter lady. JK Rowling, she would apparently use, they had this like Harry Potter wiki 
It was a community-made resource. It's totally community-made. They found like the deepest info on the most esoteric characters and put it all in one place. So much so that J.K. Rowling herself said, this is such a great resource. I use it to fact-check myself before I release a book. Like Even she's using it. But then the Harry Potter company turned around and said, hey, this is a good resource. This is a product. Why are we selling this? And I think around the same time, the guys were considering themselves. They put so much effort into it. It's like, hey, aren't you the guys that made this encyclopedia? They're like famous for it. Oh, yeah, we made the Harry Potter encyclopedia. It's like, yeah, but do you have any money? Like, no, not really, because we didn't sell anything. And they're like, why don't you make a, a book that people can buy off you? Harry Potter company says, no, I'd like to do that, please. So they cease and desist the wiki. Like, you're not allowed to do this anymore. And then they released their own product like a month later. So it's like, I wonder where that came in, you know? But yeah, anyone could do this at any time. So we're hoping that coupled with this kind of fantastic idea of moving assets between experiences, we've also got the really reinforcing side to that, which is here's a full access to all of our assets. Here's a full access to essentially our other game experiences. And Winternet also was actually it, it being designed now to have a kind of accounts layer. So we have a couple different places where you could tie your assets in to another game. One of them was just meant to be like, you've achieved a certain achievement on this game, like getting to level 100. Now you get a special car in this other game. Or you have a sword in this game will allow you to access a boss in this other game. So you could kind of arbitrage your experiences and give a little bit extra value to some of your assets since one guy might like to do something that you don't like to do. So we're hoping to do some stuff that kind of pushes the ideas of innovation in the metaverse, but we'll see how far we get because we're really focused on making sure that like Hatchy Pocket, which is our most public project, um, and actually crypto seals as well because those guys have helped us a lot with the idea that we'd be doing internet as a big thing later on so right now our biggest focus is actually a fully immutable blockchain game that's coming out from the crypto seals guys called summoners and a couple of our hatchy pocket games as well as the promoting of the ip and stuff we've got a lot of little things so we're trying to I guess, finish some stuff off and redirect our focus and stuff. Well, I, I, hope you get, I hope you get to build it because it's something that I would certainly like to, like to see in the world. All right, so I think we should uh, transition. So I think this is going live. So I hope everybody who sees this got to enjoy uh, New York and uh, the Avalanche event there. Um, I think I might actually be making a, a cameo appearance after all. So hopefully I got to see some of you guys there and I know that we're going to be having uh, a bunch of uh, in-person events pop up soon. Uh, there's one, I'm not sure if I can actually announce it yet or not, so I'm not going to, but um, I know we're gonna have a presence at a conference very soon, um, internationally in a part of the world that we have never been to before. So uh, really looking forward to meeting some uh, newer parts of the Avalanche community. So. Gabriel, uh, do you have anything that you want to add or touch on this week? 
You know, this has been such an interesting conversation. I actually do have three or four questions, but I feel like they'll be so long-winded, and I know we have crossed an hour now, and I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Um, so I'm going to hold off on asking them, but wow, man, you have really, um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you guys are onto something very big. I would encourage you to pursue the WinterNet idea. I th everything you said there resonated with me about the, you know, the need for this top layer in order to be the common thread, which runs through all the games that makes the sword that's in your inventory, not be OP in this extra game or make sense in this, you know, game and, you really just, I can't, I can't say it any better than you just did, so I won't even attempt to, but you're onto something big, man. Your intuition is absolutely correct there. Um, so, you know, of course, I would encourage you to pursue that idea. Even if you do end up on SwimmerNet, I suspect that something like this will emerge organically on SwimmerNet, simply because what you're saying is the right idea, and the right idea at the right time usually wins, and you can't really fight the right idea. You can only hope to be on the same side as it. Um, I do think it's sort of interesting that you're you're landing on this idea of intellectual property. And one thing that it reminded me of is Richard Stallman. You guys may know Richard Stallman as the famous hacker who created the Free Software Foundation and he created GNU, which is, you know, uh, sort of the core component of Linux. And there's the GPL, the GNU public license. And I always thought it was interesting that Richard Stallman, who was, you know, famously one of the best hackers in the world. In fact, he might have even coined the phrase hacker. I know he was around MIT in the 50s when they came up with the word hacker, but, you know, he's one of the traditional archetypical um, hackers and really he's sort of in the second or the, you know the second half of his career or so really moved away from writing code per se I'm sure he still writes a ton of code and does a lot of it um, in the day-to-day -day, but really what he is is he's like a legal scholar you know um, he created the GNU public license and anytime you go see a presentation from Richard Stallman if you go right now and just google his most recent presentations they all have to do with intellectual property and law very rarely do you him talk do you hear him talk about software at all and so i think it's very interesting that you guys are sort of coming to the same awareness that it's not just enough to have the technical chops now there's this whole idea of you know licensing and how are you going to license all of these individual components that make it where they can be used universally but then there's still some type of a business angle to it so yeah, this is a very eye-opening uh, conversation. I'm really glad we got you on board, man. This was super awesome. So congratulations on all your success. I think you're going to see much more of it going forward. Uh, we'll extend the invitation to you to come back anytime. If you, you know, if any of your projects come into focus and you want to plug them to the community, please just reach out to us and let us know you're welcome back anytime. So um, if people sense. wanted to find you online, how would they find you? Uh, we're pretty much chained to the desk, even though we're quiet. Um, I try to make sure that we're always up to date with our Twitter DMs. But the best place always is actually our Discord. You'll always find me on Discord. I'm very approachable. So everyone's always welcome to shoot me a message. Do you guys have a That's server, a Discord place. server? Yeah, it's, um, it should just be discord.gg slash hatchypocket. Yeah, I think it's at the bottom of the website, actually. So if you guys go to the website, there's a little, um, icon at the very bottom. I think you guys can see it. I just, yeah. So um, if you guys go to the bottom of their screen, you can see it now I'm sharing it. There's a little Discord icon. So I think they can probably find you. Yeah. There. We'll Twitter's the best place to get us. Those two, Twitter and Discord, the best. There but if they want to message me, or they want to get through to anyone on the team, the best place is our Discord. Yeah, and as Connor just said, we'll share the links uh, on in the YouTube description as well. Okay, thank you very much, man. Awesome. Connor, last minute thoughts? Uh, no, I think, yeah, I'm good. But yeah, if you're interested in following me, you can always find me on Twitter. I'm Doss underscore Connor. 
All right, cool. So yeah, yeah I'll follow you guys on Twitter. Awesome. So yeah, if you You're guys want to right. man, honestly, thanks for having me on, bro. <laughs> yeah, of Appreciate course. It. Absolutely. So yeah, anybody out there, if you want to follow me, I'm CG Cardona on Twitter, C-G-C-A-R-D-O-N-A. Um, as Connor said, when this goes live, we'll, we'll already be past this weekend. We're recording this now, of course, on Thursday, but this weekend, I think it might even be going on now, but over the weekend is the Avalanche House in New York. So obviously, if you're seeing this, that's already happened, but hopefully you had a great time. Hopefully you get to connect with Connor. He will be out there. Um, so yeah, just thanks to everybody as always. I always express gratitude and I always mean it. So thanks to everybody who's been part of the journey. Uh, we will be back next week. We have a super, super huge guest who we've tried to get on twice now. And I think we've had to bump around schedules. Finally, everything is coming into focus. So we have a very, very exciting um, guest next week. I'll be on the road. I'll actually be in Kentucky. So I'll be coming to you from my hometown next week. But um, yeah, I think we'll just sign it off. So as we always say, from snowflake to avalanche and through consensus, to the stars. Thank you, everybody. Peace.